Amen. Let's, uh, let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for all that you have done for us. God, you've blessed us, and your grace is so evident in our lives, all around us in so many ways. Thank you uh, for Christ. Thank you for his sacrifice. Thank you for the great salvation that we have through him. Thank you, Father, for the forgiveness, for the abundant life, all the numerous ways, incalculable ways, Father, that you have blessed us and poured out good things in our lives. Thank you for the gift of the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who seals us for salvation, who who walks alongside us and encourages us and builds us up. Father, thank you for all these things. Thank you for your word. God, your word is, it's living, it's active, sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. And it's a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And God, as we as we come together and as we approach your word right now, God, I pray it would do just that. It would discern the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. God, that we would be changed today because we've been in your presence, because you've worked, because you've spoken to us, because we've heard, because your Holy Spirit has convinced us and convicted us of these truths. God, we're so thick at times. It's so hard for us to learn these simple truths and to live them out in the midst of a world that wars against us, in the midst of our own flesh that wars against us, and, and with the, holy, or the evil one coming against us and, and, and hindering our desire to be holy as you are holy. And so, God, I pray that you would do a miracle here today, a miracle of transformation, Save those who are lost, God, and those of us who know you already. Bring us closer to Christ today. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Amen. Church, it's so good to be with you again today. Man, I wish you were in the room uh, here. And uh, keep praying that uh, these restrictions will be lifted and we'll be able to get back to in-person worship really, really soon. We are continuing on in our series in Jonah, the God of second chances. I'd thought about titling this the God of second, third, fourth, fifth chances, but there's no end to that. The title would be too long, and so I just stopped it at second chances. He gives us that second chance over and over again. And so we're going to be in Jonah 2 today, and uh, when I cry out in pain, God rescues. That's the title of this message. And pain, anguish, sorrow, these are the side effects of trauma, hardships, difficulties in our lives. And we've all been there, or we all will be there if somehow you've been spared uh, to this point in your life. I can't imagine that that's true for anyone. But can we believe, and here's what we're going to go after, can we believe that when we cry out in pain, when we pray to God in the midst of our anguish, God rescues every time. You say, well, I think there's times in my life when God hasn't rescued me. Just wait, it's coming. Or he has, and you didn't recognize it. The prophet Jonah cried out in pain from the belly of a great fish. God rescued him. 
He rescued him, even though, and this is so important, even though what Jonah was going through was a trial, a trauma of his own doing. We dealt with that in the first message, and I can assure you this, that no matter the situation, God will rescue you if you're one of his own. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ and you're following him, God's going to rescue you every time. Now listen, it may not be the rescue of your choosing, and we're going to come back to that thought in the message, but he will rescue you in a way that is ultimately and eternally best for you. So in Jonah 2, here's what we're going to see. It's, it's in your notes and it's on the screen. God stands ready to hear my prayer and rescue me from my hardship even when it is self-inflicted. So often it is. So Jonah chapter 2, get your Bible ready and I'm going to read through these verses and then we'll start unpacking this. Jonah 2, then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. And then I said, I'm, I'm driven away from your sight. Yet I shall again look upon your holy temple." The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped around my head. The roots of the mountains, I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life from the pit, O Lord my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you in your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their steadfast forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish, and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Well, God stands ready to hear my prayer and rescue me from my hardship, even when it's self-inflicted. In light of this, I should go to him, just as Jonah did, I should go to him in desperate prayer. Even people who aren't into God, we've seen this so many times, but even people who are not into God will pray in desperate times. There's always an uptick in spirituality during crises, and it soon wanes once the the, the crisis is past. It's so easy to forget God in the good times, isn't it? So verse 1, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish. Now I want to pause here for a moment because I believe you can't really preach Jonah unless you address the elephant in the room, which is really the great fish in the room. For back in verse 17 of chapter 1, as it concluded, the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Now, the historicity of the account is immediately dismissed by some people when they read this. It's going, it can't be, can't be real, must be a parable, must be a story of some kind, it's fictional to teach a message. So they dismiss it because of this one very element. The rest of it is believable, but this one element that Jonah was swallowed by some great fish is too much to believe. It's irrational. But maybe I could just say this as a, as a principle, let's not be dismissive of things that we don't fully understand. 
I mean, scientists don't do this. Scientists look up into the vastness of the universe that they don't understand even a small percentage of at this point. We keep throwing things up into the heavens. We put probes out there. We investigate. We speculate. We calculate. We try to figure out what the universe is, but we don't understand even a small part of what it is. But that doesn't stop us from believing that it exists or even pursuing what it's all about. Let's not be dismissive of things that we don't yet fully understand. There should be no issue with the God, like understanding who God is. He's all powerful. There should be no issue at all with God doing something miraculous here. Very often we'll run to a verse like, and there's many verses I could have chosen, for, chosen here, but Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, for my thoughts are not your thoughts. This is the Lord speaking. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. God used a great fish. It's not rational. It's not explainable, but that's okay because it's God who's doing it. In fact, as we look at this story, the most inexplicable thing is not that God rescued Jonah by using some great sea creature to do it. The most inexplicable thing is that God saved you and he saved me by sacrificing his perfect son. If you're looking for something about God that doesn't make sense, if you're looking for something that's impossible to understand, if you're looking for something that defies rational thought, it's not God's physical miracles. It's God's relentless mercy for sinners. That's what I don't understand. The rest of it is easy. So back to this, we've paused to talk about all of that for a second. Back to this. The prayer that Jonah is praying here, it's a classic psalm. It's a psalm of thanksgiving, in fact. There's different kinds of psalms, just like there's different kinds of songs. This is a psalm of thanksgiving. It follows the pattern. There's a summary of answered prayer, which Jonah gives. There's a recap of the crisis, which Jonah does in great detail. There's divine deliverance, which we see. And there's a commitment to praising God. That's the format of, if you were to go to the psalms and look through the psalms of thanksgiving, you would see that pattern. And so Jonah says, verse 2, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me out of the belly of Sheol. That's, that means grave. He's describing what we would call today a near-death experience. I cried, and you heard my voice. Now, he's speaking in this part right here. He's speaking about a different prayer than the one he's recording here. He's talking about the prayer he was praying as he was sinking down into the water, as he was drowning. He prayed some prayer that's not recorded for us. Just before the great fish swallowed him, verse 5 says, this is how he describes it, the waters closed in over me to take my life. I was dying. The deep surrounded me. I had no way out. I, I couldn't get back up to the surface. It wouldn't have mattered anyway. He had weeds wrapped around his head. He was at the roots of the mountain, sinking down to the bottom of the seabed. I went down to the land. What's he talking about here? I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. He's talking about death. He's that close. Now, this is a desperate, in-the-moment 
cry for help. It's the kind of prayer that so many of us have prayed from time to time. Just calling out to God in difficult times. And so we have this scene in mind. We see what's happening to Jonah. We can think about ourselves. He's sinking. There's seaweed wrapped around his head. His life is ebbing away. And then the big turn, verse 6. Yet, yet, you brought my life up from the pit, from the grave, from death. Oh, Lord, my God, amazing. God rescued And he adds this in verse 7, when my life was fainting away. Notice, notice what he says here. So far, like up until this point, we're commending Jonah. He's saying the right things. He's calling out to God in the midst of his distress. But then he says this, I I remembered the Lord when my life was fainting fainting away, verse 7. I I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you into your holy temple. That sounds good. But it's kind of going off the rails at this point already. In fact, one commentator, Kevin Youngblood, said um, that in the other great kind of storm narrative that we have in the Old Testament, Noah and, and the flood, the pinnacle of that story as the storm is raining down and the earth is being flooded and Noah and his family are there, the, the pinnacle of the story is Genesis 8.1. And here's what it says. Um, then God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. Now, now look, look at this, because we just read this in chapter seven and verse seven. Now notice, look on the slide. Jonah said, I remembered the Lord. I did this. I remembered him. But of Noah, it said that God was the one who did the remembering. God remembered Noah. You can see the difference. I mean, I want to give Jonah some credit here for calling out to God. And he said so much that's right in this psalm that he's written. But he makes it so hard to be on his side. It's so hard for us at times not to take credit for getting ourselves out of situations rather than seeing that it's the Lord that does these things. In fact, Kevin Youngblood said this of this passage, the salient point is not that he, Jonah, remembered Yahweh, but that Yahweh remembered him. So that's the first problem with Jonah's prayer. And he's not done, verse 8. He talks about those who pay regard to vain idols, forsaking their hope of steadfast love. He's just gotten pitched off a boat into a stormy sea because he was the one that was causing the storm. The pagan sailors that were on the boat demonstrated more devotion to Yahweh than he did. And yet Jonah, in the midst of drowning throws in this passive-aggressive little comment about the pagan sailors and probably about the Ninevites that he had been called to preach to but had not. Then this, it just gets worse. Verse 9, but with the voice of thanksgiving, I will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. The irony here, 
is that that's exactly what the sailors did. When they tossed Jonah overboard and the, and the sea stopped, they had already prayed to Yahweh before they did that. Jonah hadn't done that at that point, by the way. And then they made vows, they made sacrifices to, to Yahweh, to God. They were more faithful than he was. And yet here he is in verse 9 dissing them. He's demonstrating or trying to demonstrate his own piety, even as he sits in the belly of the great fish. And so, he's, so, so far in this prayer, what we've seen is that he's taking credit for some of this. Um, he, he's, he's failing the mercy test through all of this, the mercy towards the pagans. And he's trying to trick God into believing that Somehow he's worthy of this. That he can somehow get God to forget about what this was really all about, which was his disobedience concerning going on his mission. You know what? I'm just going to tell God that I, I, I'm very thankful, and when I get out of this situation, I'm going to fulfill my vows. I'm going to go to the temple. I'm going to make sacrifices. That's not what God requires of him at this point such a mess. Jonah's so preoccupied with what he has done as if his salvation and his mission is dependent on his own good works and his own faithful living rather than to admit his failings and throw himself on the mercy of God. He's instead doubling down on how awesome he is even while he sits in the belly of the fish. It's remarkable that a so-called man of God could fail so miserably to see that salvation is by faith alone. Please do not misunderstand the Old Testament as being something other than salvation is by faith alone. What's missing from Jonah's prayer, it's glaringly missing, is any sense of of repentance or any admission of guilt. There's none of that. There was none of that on the boat. There was no repentance on the boat. There's no repentance in the water or in the fish. He's given no thought to his mission. He's shown no concern for the plight of the spiritually lost, the sailors or the Ninevites. The prayer has the appearance of piety but falls short. I mean, we can commend him for praying a wonderful scriptural prayer. He learned his lessons well. He went to synagogue and he learned the things that he had to learn. But his attitude in prayer is still not that of a broken man. Now, you and I may not get it perfectly right in prayer, and, and here's, here's the redeeming part of this for us because this is entirely about the relentless mercy of God. You and I may not get it perfectly right in our prayers, and that's okay, because God, by His grace, is still working. Pour it out. The thing we can commend about what Jonah is doing here is at least he's praying. Pour it all out to God. Tell Him everything, and don't worry about getting it perfect. In fact, recognize that it's it's pretty likely that in your prayers you're never going to get it perfect. I mean, how arrogant a person must be to think that their prayers always align with, 
God's will, who God is, and what His purposes are in this world. We studied the book of Romans not too long ago, and in Romans 8, 26, it says this, such a great comforting verse with respect to our prayers. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So go to God in desperate prayer. Bring whatever you have to him and let the Holy Spirit do the rest. That was good news for Jonah. It's good news for us to have the Holy Spirit ministering uh, through grace to us in this way. Secondly, let's look at this. Um, Acknowledge His obvious sovereignty. God is in control. Now jump back to verse 3 for a second. For you, He says this, For you, for you, God, cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas. Now, Jonah knows, even as he prays this, Jonah knows that when he was on that boat, it wasn't God who cast him overboard. It was the sailors who did the physical act of throwing him overboard. But he also knows that they were merely the human agents of God's will. You know, similarly, when we talk about the crucifixion, we can talk about the crucifixion and who is responsible for the crucifixion in various ways. We can talk about the Romans being responsible because the Romans, Pontius Pilate and his soldiers, they're the ones who ultimately whipped him, scourged him, beat him, put him on the cross, nailed him there, put the cross up in the air, thrust the sword in his side. Ultimately, it was Pilate's word that made him crucified, be crucified on the cross. The Romans crucified him, but of course we could also look at the religious leaders who orchestrated the whole thing, who, who did the arrest in the Garden of Gethsemane, who brought him to Pilate, who accused him of these, who whooped up the crowd, who demanded his crucifixion. We could look at the Jews as being the, the instrument of the ones who killed him, or seeing our own culpability of sinners, understanding the theological implications of the cross. You and I could say, well, it was me that put him there. It's not the Romans, not the Jews. It was me. It was you and your sin that put Jesus on the cross. But ultimately, it was the Lord himself who crucified Christ. We know from Acts 2.23, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. God's wrath demanded that a price be paid for our sin. God ordained that this is the way that that should be paid with the perfect Son of God giving His life. God's wrath demanded the death of His Son. God uses human agency, but He is sovereign over it all. And so Jonah rightly says, it was the Lord who threw him overboard. He continues, verse 3, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I'm driven away from your sight. He's relating some solid theology here. God was fully in control and ordaining everything that happened to Jonah. We can see that the great fish is both It's both rescue and judgment. The great fish is both salvation and discipline. 
God is rescuing him, but as he does, he's pressing him to learn more about what it means to love and serve God. This isn't nearly the end of the story. Immediately, I, 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 I run to Romans 8, 28. I just think about what that verse says to us as we go through the various things that we face in our lives. We face trauma. We face hardship. We face difficulties. And we know that for those who love God, for Christians who have had their sins forgiven and who are headed to eternity, who are the sons and daughters of God, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Now the all things in that verse, and this is key, the all things that the Apostle Paul is talking about relates to our salvation, our holiness. That's what Romans 8 is about. That's what Romans 1 to 8 is about. It relates to our salvation, our holiness, and our eventual glorification with Christ. And so when we talk about the all things working out, the, the working out part is that we become more like Jesus. Not that it works out according to our plan, the way we think it should play out in our lives. See, God is more interested in your spiritual holiness than in your physical healthiness. I mean, your physical health is important. It's not nearly the most important thing. Your material wealth, your safety, your security, your prosperity, those are all important things, but they're not at all what is of critical importance to God. They should not be to us. Physical rescue should be the least of our concerns, but it seems like that's the thing we pray about most often. God, keep us safe. God, keep us safe. God, make it easy. God, smooth it out. But God is exercising his sovereignty to bring about something that is awesome in you and also in this world because it's not just about you and me. And he's doing this according to his precise purposes. So the, the point is just acknowledge that. Acknowledge that God's at work in every circumstance. And then cling to hope. Now, we have to recall that uh, we said this last week as we opened the book, but the book is satire. Jonah is an anti-hero. The, the book, in essence, pokes fun at Jonah to tell us, don't be like Jonah. When Jonah says in verse 4, the latter part of verse 4 there, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple, temple it seems like such a noble thing. It's, so, like, so, it's the right hope that he's grasping onto, that he's again going to be in Jerusalem. He's again going to be at the temple. He's going to be worshiping God. Isn't that where God wants his people to be? But what's missing is his acknowledgement that he's supposed to be going to, oh, if you were in the room, you'd say Nineveh. Not supposed to be going to Jerusalem. Why is he thinking about that? He has hope. That's good. Check mark. But God may be saying to him, you know, it's so great that you long to see the temple again. But seriously, I called you to go to Nineveh. 
Maybe you should be thinking about that as you sit in the belly of the whale. Great fish. Maybe you should be thinking about that as you're praying this desperate prayer as I set up your rescue. How about, Jonah, you say it this way, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple after I fulfill the calling you've put on my life to go to Nineveh and preach to them. So yes, Jonah is clinging to hope, and that's admirable, but the hope is still somewhat misplaced. And obviously Jonah knows that God rescued him. You know, I mean, Jonah's sitting there. I've been rescued. I'm in, I'm in, I'm alive. I'm in a weird place, but I'm alive. So Jonah knows he's been rescued this much. So he's doing the math and he's going, well, if God rescued me this much, he's not going to leave me to be digested in the belly of this sea creature. I'm, obviously, he's going to rescue me the rest of the way. He's figured that out. God is so gracious toward us when we say misplaced, well-intentioned things that are simply untrue. God's grace covers these things. And we've gone through, um, this is hard because I know that this is going to be difficult for some people to hear. And in the last year and a half, we've gone through um, the grieving process with quite a number of families in our church. And uh, there's been some open-endedness to that because we haven't been able to grieve in the way that we would normally grieve, and families haven't been able to get together. We haven't been able to do uh, services in some cases for people, and it's just been very, very difficult. But I have some things to say here that relate to this hope and how we create a false hope for ourselves. We've created unbiblical notions of heaven where it's all about seeing our loved one. I can't wait to get to heaven to see this person who's passed. We know as Christians, that's not what it's about. It's not about getting to heaven to see our mom and dad or our spouse or our child. It's, it's not about that. It's all about seeing Jesus. Yet we say this, I'm going to see this loved one. We say this to comfort ourselves in our grief. Sometimes we even go further. Again, kindly, gently. Sometimes we go further and we decide that our loved ones who never expressed any faith in Christ on this side of eternity are somehow in heaven. I have no problem with entrusting them to the mercy of God and hoping for some thief on the cross-like experience that may have happened. I think we could cling to that hope while trusting the Lord for that, but not actually saying they're there. When we do that, when we cling to that false hope, we're abandoning what we say we believe about sin, what we believe about Christ and His sacrifice, what we believe about the need for conversion. In fact, when we say things like that, we, we contradict the gospel. We contradict our evangelistic strategy to, to, to tell people to come and see and to go and tell. 
The preacher in Hebrew said it this way, let us hold unswervingly. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess. For he who promised is faithful. So yes, cling to hope. Not a fabricated hope. Cling to hope in Christ. Not in anything of this world. Not in, not in money or physical strength or health. Not in relationships as great as they can be. Not in leaders of any kind. Not in pithy motivational sayings. Not in, in, in aberrant theology. Not in comfort and leisure. Our hope is in Christ alone. Solus Christus. Christ alone. So here it is. God stands ready to hear my prayer and rescue me from my hardship even when it is self-inflicted. So finally I should anticipate His perfect response. God is all about His good news for the world. That's the entire redemptive plan. He's glorifying Himself by redeeming people. He's on a rescue mission. Jonah is, is sinking down into the sea and he dials 911. And God responds not simply to rescue his prophet using a great fish, but to advance his plan in the world. Verse 10, and the Lord spoke to the fish and it, blah, it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Now I want to believe because it's satire. I want to believe that this is the perfect response to a prayer that wasn't quite, quite coming from a heart that understood that God was behind all of this. Jonah thought too much of himself, and this almost certainly, if, if God makes you vomit, that's a rather humbling experience, wouldn't you agree? God was knocking Jonah down a few pegs. He was humiliated. The word vomit here is intentionally gross. It's graphic. It's supposed to be. But this is God's rescue. This is where we come back to the point I mentioned in the introduction. Some responses of God are not what we would classify, not what we would classify as rescue. That doesn't look like a rescue. In fact, in a, in a startling example in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is writing back to this church to help them with a number of issues that are going on in the church, one of which is this sin in the church issue with this one man. He's a Christian man. He's professing faith in Christ. He's fallen into a reprehensible sin, one, in fact, that the passage says that even unbelievers don't commit this sin. The church has been called upon to discipline him by casting him out, by excommunicating him. He's unrepentant, by the way. Here's what the Apostle Paul says about it. This is 1 Corinthians 5, 5. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Now listen to this, because up to this point, you might think, this guy's not even saved. You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That's rescue, but not the desirable kind. 
Rescue may be rescue. This is, this is the kind of rescue that we wouldn't necessarily choose for ourselves. Rescue may be death. Rescue may be the loss of a relationship that you don't realize is toxic to you. Rescue may be the loss of wealth because you can't handle it. And it's taking you from Christ. Rescue may be an infirmity that limits you physically, professionally, relationally, but it brings you closer to the Lord. I mean, remember Isaiah 55? God's ways are higher than our ways. We saw last week that Jesus drew a straight line. This is in Matthew 12. He drew a straight line from Jonah, this very situation, this, this, this being swallowed by the great fish, a straight line from Jonah to himself. And from this episode to his own death and burial, God's perfect response to humanity's greatest dilemma, our greatest dilemma, sin and death. God's perfect response to humanity's greatest dilemma was to have his own son be crucified. Everything God did, everything God does, everything that God will do funnels through the singular plan of redemption that God has for this world. Everything that's happening in your life right now, good and bad, relates to living out the gospel. There's nothing in your life that's neutral. Every blessing is a gospel gift. Every trial, self-inflicted or not, is about growth and living out the gospel. Every relationship, a gospel opportunity, no matter the circumstances, we ought to be anticipating God's perfect response every time. Now, I left out one small, just as we bring this for a close and prepare for the Lord's table, I left out one small but critical phrase in the passage as we work through it. But we're going to close with it now. Jonah says in his prayer, this is back in verse 9, just the latter part there, he makes this fantastic statement. You should mark this in your Bibles. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And he gets it exactly right. Before the story ends, before we get to the end of Jonah 4, the last part of this, he's going to get it wrong again, but here he gets it right. Jonah's heart may not have been in the right place as he said these words. God's not asking for that anyway. Whatever state your heart is in, God stands ready to hear the prayer, to rescue you from whatever you're going through, even if you brought it on yourself, because that's his relentless mercy. Salvation belongs to the Lord. He gives it to whom he pleases. And so at the midway point of the narrative, though Jonah is spewed onto the beach intact, he's not yet rescued. The question remains hanging in the air. Before we get to the end of the story, will Jonah actually be rescued? But more importantly, will you be rescued? Let me pray for us. Father, 
so grateful for your word and for how it, as we, as we prayed off the top, how it penetrates right into our hearts. It, it pierces. God, I have no doubt that a message like this one is going to stir up a lot for people. And I pray your Holy Spirit will do what I cannot do, bring about that transformation that we also desperately need. And God, that we would, that we would revel in your grace to see how often Jonah messes it up and how relentlessly you continue to pour out your mercy on him. I'm so grateful for that because I need that. And everyone who's watching this right now, everyone who's hearing this message needs that relentless mercy because we're all so prone to messing it up. So God, thank you for hearing this prayer, a desperate prayer again for your help. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.